different? No offering music this morning? It's actually quirky. I saw you crossed your name off of the list this morning. You never saw my name off. Must have been a gap in that. But can we do church without offering music? It's like trying to do church without a bulletin, isn't it? Well, good morning. Um, I want to apologize in advance if you hear popping and cracking in the sound system. We're not sure exactly what that is. It's not the easy stuff that that, uh, can be remedied, so we're still troubleshooting on that. So if that irritates you a little bit, I I apologize for that. uh, And before I dive into our text this morning, um, we have just completed, as you know, another week of summer retreats for the girls' retreat, followed by the guys' retreat. And... Uh, We're going to hear a few testimonies after the sermon from some ladies and some guys and what happened and how the Lord ministered and moved. But I just want to say to this body, thank you so much for the support that you offer. There's just it's the food um, that that comes out, piles up in the kitchen. It's very generous with that financial donations and the prayer support is really incredible. Just to know that so many people pray for specific things and you really sense that when we're retreating like that, that we are held up by the power of prayer. It's very, very evident. And I know it's been said many, many times, but without that kind of enthusiasm and support, the retreats just wouldn't have the impact that they do. So thank you so much. Your prayers and your gifts are very, very appreciated and very powerful. We are in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. We are in our last sermon on the first 17 verses. And this is the begat section, the genealogy section. And Matthew begins his gospel uh, with genealogies to show that Jesus is a sovereign king, that he has divine right to reign and rule over the universe, both in heaven and earth. No matter which direction you followed it, whether it's through Mary's bloodline or Joseph's bloodline, it brings you right back to David. And it shows that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah. And last time we looked at the fact that this is a record of the genealogies, which means it's it's a recorded document. It's a legal document, which means that it's 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 uh, reporting an actual historical event that Jesus really did enter into our world, our history, our time. As an event. So Christianity is based on actual events. Yes, there are beliefs. There are opinions. There's faith involved. But Christianity is based on historical documentation. And it reminds me of what Paul, the Apostle Paul, said to the Corinthians. And basically, in essence, he said, without the pierced hands and feet and without the empty tomb, our faith is in vain. What is he saying when he says that? He's saying that it's based on real events, things that happened in our in our world. And if you don't, if you have questions, he would say, then go ask the witnesses, because there were many people. Some saw the empty tomb, but even more saw the risen Lord. Just go ask them. And he's just saying that our faith isn't just something we pulled out of the sky or something we choose to believe conveniently. It is based on fact. And Matthew points that out. Uh, Not so long ago, perhaps you saw it as well. But Hollywood tapped into that idea of the risen Christ in the empty tomb. And there was a movie called Risen. And we went to the theater 
and Saul. And it was pretty intriguing. They stayed fairly close, I think, to the gospel account. But you have to take liberties if you're going to do a play or any kind of movie because we don't have all the details. We can't fill in between the lines. And so they did that. But it was intriguing. The Roman soldier was given the job to find the body of Christ so that there would not be an upheaval because if they couldn't find the body of Christ, then people would believe, well, maybe he did rise from from the dead and he would gain more followers. So this Roman soldier was given the task to find the dead body and he hunted and he searched and uh, he did find the body, by the way, but the body was not in a hole in the ground. The body had not been snatched away or taken or stolen, as was said by the false testifiers. But he encountered the risen Lord and were led to believe in that movie anyway that he became a believer. There was a a neat little spot in that movie where um, it just kind of reminded me of the reality of Christ. You know how we get to know each other? And I've been preaching here for, this is my 13th year, so I have certain mannerisms Right. Like there's predictable things about me that, you know, just because you've gotten to know me over the years. Well, the disciples, that's how it would be with Jesus. And there was this really neat scene where they come to this town and there's this uh, old lady that is yelling and shunning this leper. Now, the leper, a lot of times they can't feed themselves. And so they have to beg for food. And so he just wanted something to eat. But nobody wants a leper because they're contagious. And so they were throwing things at him and. And uh, the disciples were kind of over on the side with Jesus. And this is after the resurrection. And um, he gets up, Jesus gets up, and he walks over to the situation. You can just see their eyes are trained on him. They're trying to figure out, because, you know, Jesus could be pretty unpredictable. What's he going to do this time? Jesus really broke the mold. And he walks over there, and they're just kind of waiting to see, is this going to be a rebuke, a healing? What's he going to do this time? And they they look for it. And apparently he had a certain gleam in his eye or something because I think it must have been Peter said, oh, he's going to do it again. They, they detected that this is one of his healing modes that he's going to get into. And sure enough, he healed the leper. And that was in the movies, but it was neat. It was a neat reminder that Jesus was that real. And there were parts about him that were predictable. I mean, maybe he got a certain look in his eye or on his face when he was going to perform a certain kind of miracle. But there's another powerful lesson in this genealogy in the genealogical section here that I don't want to pass up, because not only do we find royal history with the royal bloodline, but we also find what I'm going to call royal grace in this bloodline. And in other words, there's a sense in which Jesus's royal genealogy is not as royal as you might think when you study the names that are in his bloodline. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And as you know, uh, genealogies are kind of like credentials. Well, if you go buy, a, uh, say, a purebred animal of some sort, a horse or a dog, you want the papers. If that person just says, oh, no, I promise it's purebred, you want papers if you're going to pay that kind of money. So genealogies serve as credentials. And the better your credentials, the more important you are. If you have really famous people or popular people in your bloodline that you were uh, related to, that's pretty impressive. I remember a time when um, in the sports world, Joe Montana 
was a big sensation. Everybody was talking about Joe Montana, the quarterback. Joe Montana, of course, my name is Montana, but somebody that might hear it from a distance might say, Montana, are you related to Joe Montana? And I got to admit, it would have been nice at that time to say, Joe, Joe, yeah, Joe's in my, we're blood. I know Joe. Where's football? Football's in my blood. But of course, I couldn't say that. But so if you have somebody famous or popular or great, if there's greatness in your bloodline, yeah, it's impressive. And it makes it, it brings honor to you, really, and to your family. But it can also work in reverse. The opposite is also true. Our, our bloodline, our descendants, our relatives have the ability to bring honor, but also dishonor to us. And so we may want to conveniently not mention them or conveniently not bring certain people up. Some people that have very, very unpopular descendants even go so far as to change their name to try to escape the stigma that comes with it. This morning, a person's name, an infamous person's name was mentioned in Sunday school. That person was Adolf Hitler. How would you like to have the last name of Hitler? Because in our culture, everybody knows about Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust and what went down there. Well, the fact of the matter is, he does have some descendants. Uh, One of his descendants, we'll camp here for a minute just to help understand the point where we're headed. One of his descendants was his nephew's. And his nephew at that time um, of during the war and the days of Hitler, he came to the United States and eventually he changed his name to Stuart Houston. His last name to Stuart Houston. I don't know what his first name was. <clears throat> and he is now deceased. But you know that Adolf Hitler believed that the Aryan race was a superior race, that his This bloodline, that Aryan bloodline, would eventually bring perfection into the world because it was um, a more perfect race than the others. And in order to bring that dream or utopia into the world more rapidly, he decided that he was going to extinguish lesser bloodlines, lesser races of people, because it would just deter the process of evolution, of good breeding and Unfortunately, there were some races like the Poles and primarily what we're aware of, the Jews. We're aware of the Holocaust where he just extinguished or just terminated, exterminated people because of their race. So, of course, there's he's very uh, he's not thought highly of that I'm aware of anywhere in the world. But what about his bloodline? So he believed that his superior bloodline was what the world needed. And so he rid the world of the lesser bloodlines. But whatever actually became of his bloodline is very interesting. According to a 2013 article on a website uh, entitled Today I Found Out, um, there are five living relatives of the Hitler bloodline, two from a half-sister and three from a half-brother. The two from the half-sister, their ages now are 85 and 71. They have never married. And so many people would say there's probably their opportunity to continue the bloodline on that side is gone. They have no intentions 
as far as we know, of marrying or of having any children. So that leaves the other side. The three, and it, there were three brothers on the other side, and that's the side, the Stuart Houston side of the people that the person that changed his name from Hitler to that. There, they range in ages from. Uh, so let's see. Be, this, since the article was written three years ago, 51 to 65. So there's three descendants of Hitler alive today that have his bloodline in them, and. Of course, they are not beyond the childbearing age, but they have made an agreement to never have children to intentionally kill off the Hitler bloodline. A book was written by David Gardner called The Last of the Hitlers Tracked Down to the Surviving. He, he tracked down the surviving Hitler descendants. And he says they didn't sign a pact, but what they did is they talked amongst themselves. They talked about the burden they've had in the background of their lives and decided that none of them would marry. None of them would have children. And that's a pact that they have kept to this day. In any event, it's ironic that Hitler, the supposed pinnacle of the master race, should have his own bloodline soon to be stamped out. Intentionally and undesirably. Quite a turn of events with that family. So what does all that have to do with the begats in the gospel of Matthew? Well, with this in mind, we look at who God in his inspired word has put in the bloodline or the genealogy of the king of kings. I'm not going to read these 17 verses because this is our third trip around. We've already read it several times, but I will make reference to several of these verses. So, first of all, who do we find in Jesus's genealogy that might not be so desirable? The first thing we find is women. There are five women in Jesus's genealogy, to be exact. We have Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, and She's just called Uriah's wife in verse 6. Of course, that would be Bathsheba. And then verse 16, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you say, well, of course, women are in Jesus's genealogy. You have to have women to even have babies. We all have women in our in our bloodline. But in that day, the way things worked was that it was very rare to find women in your genealogy because they were uh, not they didn't have any legal rights. Their identity was strictly in the man. The man, the names were passed through the father. All the legal rights were, were passed through the men or the father. And the wife was just attached to that. And that's where she got her identity. And so uh, women really, their testimonies and so forth didn't hold up in court. That's just the way that culture was, unfortunately. And so you didn't put women in your genealogy. They just didn't count. It didn't matter. They had no legal rights. And yet here in Jesus's genealogy, you might say it's countercultural. In Jesus's genealogy, it's as if God said, no, leave them in there. I want the world to see there's going to be a lot of people that are going to read this throughout the ages. And I want the world to see that women matter. I want the world to see that they have a place, though they may, they may not have a place in that culture. They have a place in my kingdom. They have a place in my economy and play an important part in my plan. So they served in the royal line. 
And by the way, uh, today Christianity is often looked at as the religion that hinders women and rights. If you follow history, it's the gospel that has, that have, has given women the freedoms that they have today. And it's because of this genealogy and the way that Jesus included women and treated women in his kingdom plan that gave the world new eyes for their place in this world. The second thing that we find in this genealogy are Gentiles. And of course, if the Jews were reading this, this would be worse than finding women in there. You'll remember that the Nazis despised the Jews. They looked at them as a lesser race. But there was also uh, some prejudice. Well, there's there's always been prejudice in the world. But the Jews did not think very highly of the Gentiles. And the strictest Jews would go so far as to walk around Gentiles. Or if a Gentile walked down that aisle, they would go around this way. They didn't want anything to do with them. They didn't want to come close to them because they might touch something that they touched and therefore they would be unclean. And, of course, you know the parable of the good Samaritan. So Gentiles are not a good thing to have in your genealogy, especially if you are a Jew. And here in this genealogy, we have Rahab, who is a Canaanite. And Rahab is the woman that hid the spies um, when God was, well, the spies of Jericho that were going in to spy out the land to see if they could defeat the people of Jericho. And she, she hid them. Rahab was a Gentile. We also have Ruth, the, Mo, the Moabitess. And you'll recall from Nehemiah, Moabites were not allowed into the presence of God because the Moabites were so unhospitable to the Jewish people, God's people during the Exodus. When he was bringing them out, they wouldn't give him food. They wouldn't give him water. They didn't want anything to do with him. So they were excluded from the presence of God. And here you have Ruth the Moabitess in there. So we find these two Gentiles in the line of the king in his family. As if to say, God, leave them in there. The world needs to know that Gentiles have a place in my economy. They have, though the world may not recognize them, though my people may not recognize them in this way, they are important players. Without their actions, without their faith, there would be no king of the Jews. There would be no king of kings. So he gave them an importance that the world had not recognized. And then thirdly, we find in Jesus's Genealogy of all things, very immoral people. Not only was uh, Rahab a Canaanite, but she was a prostitute as well. As a matter of fact, her identity in Scripture was Rahab the prostitute. Another interesting thing in that movie, forgive me for bringing it up, but it just came to my mind. Was that when the soldier was looking for Jesus, he was looking for people that knew Jesus that hopefully would lead them to him or at least the body. And then there was Mary Magdalene, a former prostitute. And he goes into this pub like place and says, does anybody in here know Mary Magdalene? And all the guys hands raised. You know her. All right. But she had that reputation. And that was a reputation that Rahab had. And then we also have in here Tamar. 
Tamar. What a drama. What a story that she has. She is also a Gentile. And you will recall that Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son, Ur. And she's a Gentile. He shouldn't have married her, but he did. And Scripture just says, it's that one of those puzzling verses in Scripture that kind of drives me crazy because it says he was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took him, killed him. And it doesn't tell us exactly what he did. Well, what evil did you do? Because, you know, I'm kind of wondering, well, what evil do you have to do to get snuffed out by God? You kind of left that out of Scripture there. It just says that he was evil in the sight of the Lord and he was gone. And in that day, they had the strange practice of a leverite marriage, which means that if the older son died in the marriage and the younger son wasn't married yet, the next one in line takes his place. And that has a lot to do with the protection of the women so that they have a name, they have identity, they, they can be taken care of and they have their rights through their husband. So the second son in the line says, sure, uh, I'll sleep with her, but I'm not going to give her any children. And that was Onan. Lord didn't appreciate that. And his life was snuffed out. So then there's one more son, Shelah. And Judah's beginning to get the hint here. And he's like, hey, that's two down. I'm not so sure I want to give my third son based on this pattern here. So he tells his daughter-in-law, Tamar, yeah, he's a little too young yet, but just go back home. and And I'll send him your way when he's old enough, when I think he's ready. He had no intentions of doing that. So there she is. She has no protection. She has no identity. She has no inheritance, no rights without a man. And so she takes matters into her own hands and she dresses like a prostitute, disguises herself very well, strategically places herself on this road and knows that Judah, her father-in-law, is traveling to Timnah to shear the sheep. And he comes upon her and he does what any respectable patriarch of his time would do. He sleeps with her. She gets prego. She gets pregnant. Allowed to say that? And uh, he hears about it. And he is undone that his daughter-in-law, to find that his daughter-in-law is sleeping around when she's supposed to be waiting for his youngest son for marriage. So he calls a big meeting to get this matter straight. And he has every intention of executing justice for this great crime. And she basically, in essence, and this is my version, says, yes, this is a terrible thing that has happened. I am with child and I even know who the father is. And she pulls out a belt, which was Judah's belt. And so, in essence, he's busted. He caves and he says, on second thought, maybe we shouldn't throw any rocks uh, at her. She's more righteous than I am. And that's how. But there's a, this is all this is the drama in Jesus's line. I mean, these are the stories that would be told. This is what would come to people's mind when they read this genealogy. And Matthew doesn't hide these. He doesn't hide that there were women. He doesn't hide that there were Gentiles. He doesn't hide that there were immoral people in this line that Jesus was related to. They all have a place. They all play a part. And then there's the one that he calls the wife of Uriah or Uriah's wife. Now, why does he call her Uriah? He doesn't give her a name. 
And why doesn't he say the wife of David? Because we know it's Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. And Timothy Keller believes this is basically, in essence, a slam against David. It's reminding us. Now, if you had David in your line, that's something to, that's impressive. King David, he slew Goliath. He won all of these batteries, battles. He set up the kingdom and a right monarchy. He expanded the borders farther than anybody else had done in the history of the nation, except when they first went in. I mean, to have King David, that's something. And yet Matthew points out King's, King David's uh, big slip, his big blemish by reminding us of Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. She's in the line because King David committed adultery with her. He had a craving for her and he took her. And he had opportunities, if you remember the story, God gave him so many opportunities to, David, stop. It's not working. Just stop. Stop trying to make it legal. Stop trying to cover up your sin. And yet he persisted and persisted and persisted and finally had one of his most loyal soldiers that would die for him had him killed Uriah. That's how low he stooped. He lied. He lusted. He murdered, he committed adultery, he stained the entire kingdom, he stained the royal line. And yet this woman of adultery is an important part of the genealogy of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So you, you read this royal grace. What do you take home from something that like that in our day and age? Well, I think that you see that all along is the grace of God. It's the grace of God, because when it gets right down to it, no matter who you look like, who you look at in this line, they're all unclean. They're all unworthy. None of them are worthy to be in the line of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They all have their stories. And yet there they are in port. They all blew it. They're all unfit to be in the presence of God. And yet. They are deserving, though, to be at the bottom. Here they are standing at the top with Christ. So the people that the world puts on the bottom are standing at the top. I think Matthew purposes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scripture to include this. Because the world needs to know. The world needs to know about the God of grace. The world needs to know about the place that faith in Christ plays in the economy, in the plan, in the kingdom of God, our decisions, our actions, our faith, the direction that we take plays a part, though we are all unfit. So there's grace every place in this genealogy, which leads us to realize that grace means that you think about this no matter who you are or aren't, no matter where you came from. No matter your past, no matter what you did or didn't do, the grace of God extends to everyone. The grace of God says that all can belong, that repent and place their faith in Christ. Because here's the amazing thing, that though none before Christ were clean or even fit to bear that name, the one at the end of the line cleansed 
them all. And that is the grace of God. Jesus, the king, makes the whole line clean. And that was his promise. He said in Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's God saying to whoever hears these words, will you just stop and think about the way your life is and the way it works? Will you realize that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of my holy, perfect laws? You've fallen short of living your life for me as an act of worship. Reason and come to me in faith. Repent of your sins and come to me. Believe in me and I will cleanse you because you cannot cleanse yourself. And you need to be pardoned as opposed to judged for your violations. See, grace permeates it all. It permeates the, the racism, it permeates the, the divisiveness and the adultery and, and the incest in the family of Tamar and the neglect and the abuse and the paganism and the lust and the prostitution and the lying. It covers it all. And it also means that perhaps if there's somebody out there thinking like I used to think, there's no way I could ever be good enough to get into God's kingdom. That that's faulty thinking. That's based on what we can do. It's based on works. It's what, based on what we bring to the table. We don't make ourselves Christians. Christ makes us Christians. It's in Christ alone. Philip Keller says, The world values pedigree. The world values money and race. The world values class. Jesus turns it all upside down and he says it matters not. In my church, those things that are so important out there should not be so important in here. Now, these people that were excluded by society, even excluded by the law of God, sit down as equals under the grace of God. So we want, as we close, we want these royal truths to change us. To change the way we, we look at God as the God of grace. To change the way that we look at ourselves. And understand that the way that God looks at us through the blood of Christ. If we are in the family of God, though we do not deserve to be there. We want it to, to change also the way that we look at each other. And the way that we look at the people in the world, our neighbors. God's grace is truly amazing because here we are as an outpost of the kingdom of God. None of us deserving to be in the presence of God. None of us deserving to play a part in the kingdom of God. But by the grace of God, here we are. And we gather Sunday after Sunday by the power of the Lord to propagate his truth, to be salt and light in the world. And that's amazing grace or what we might think of as royal grace. Speaking of, may God bless the preaching of his word. And speaking of royal grace, uh, we experienced God's grace here this weekend for our retreats. And I promised a few testimonies. And as long as none of the kids chicken out the last minute, we will hear these 
testimonies. That won't happen. But um, I'm going to let the ladies be a gentleman. Let the ladies go first and ask Hannah to introduce these ladies that will give a testimony. And then I'll come up and call a few guys that are going to give a testimony about the retreat.